Uh, God, we're so thankful for your grace. Uh, thank you for your kindness. I thank you that we get to be back here again. Uh, I, I'm thankful to see all these kiddos. And God, we do pray for your help now that as we open up your word, um, that you would speak. Uh, and we know that your word does speak, but that as you do speak, that our hearts would listen. And that uh, even as we, we do pray for, uh, for your help, uh, as, we, as we look at a very um, personal uh, and often convicting passage, that it would move our hearts, uh, that the Spirit would convict us and challenge us. And so God, we thank you, and we love you. We ask us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, if you guys have your Bibles again, um, please turn with me to Psalm 51. We are re- returning back to Psalm 51, and um, this will be our last message in the Psalms, I promise. There will be no part three, um, but uh, as you're turning there, I, I do hope that uh, in this series, um, it has been helpful for you guys in orienting um, your gaze toward God as we start the new school year. I do hope that it's helpful. Uh, I know it's been particularly helpful for me. And so um, I hope that the, the Psalms is a book that you uh, return to regularly over and over again. And so uh, as we are back in Psalm 51, uh, I invite you to turn with me, and then we're going to read the entire Psalm again. Um, this is what David writes. So the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret place. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart, broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, well, about, a, about four years ago, I, I realized that I needed to wear glasses. Um, up until four years ago, I never needed to wear glasses or contacts. And I had no problems seeing things from a distance. Uh, but I real, realized my eyesight was bad when we were singing for worship on a Sunday. And I had to squint my eyes uh, to see the words projected on the screen. And I wasn't even actually sitting that far from the screen. And so uh, I went to the optometrist. Now, if you've ever been to the optometrist before, in order to evaluate your vision, uh, you have to recite the letters and numbers on the eye chart, right? You guys familiar with that? And, you know, as I was trying to read the letters, I, I realized I couldn't read the really small ones. And sort of, in, instead of telling the optometrist that I couldn't read it, I just, you know, squinted my eyes and read the letters. And the, the optometrist, who, who happened to be uh, one of my friends, could tell that I was squinting. And so she said, you know, you're, you're not really helping yourself here when you squint your eyes. Uh, like there's, there's no point pretending that you, can't, you can, that you can see the letters that you can't see uh, because you'll only be misdiagnosed. Um, and so what I had realized is that there's no point fooling the optometrist 
to believe that my vision was better than it really was. Uh, because an inaccurate diagnosis will only lead to an inaccurate prescription. This is the problem with, with fooling myself. Uh, I deprive myself from what I truly need. And this is what we had learned in the first part of Psalm 51. If you had missed the, the message two weeks ago, I had originally um, intended to preach just the entirety of the psalm, but you know me, and so I, I, I broke the psalm into two parts. And so if tonight's message doesn't really make sense, that's on you, that's your fault. I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, just, just a brief refresher, Psalm 51 is the private and now public confession of David, who had sinned so badly against God and others that you would think that he had sinned himself out of the grace of God. And what we see in the inner life of David's confession is that no one is so bad that he or she is beyond the forgiveness of God. And at the same time, no one is so good that they are beyond the need for forgiveness. You know, the thing about forgiveness is that forgiveness can't be a burden lifter if you don't see your own sin as your greatest burden. Until we can stop pointing the finger at our parents, at our classmates, at others, and our circumstances, until we stop pretending and living in denial and avoidance, until we stop proving ourselves to God, until we see ourselves as the worst sinner, until we can see our sin as our greatest sorrow, we will not be able to see God's forgiveness as our greatest solution. It's the reason why the Apostle John writes that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, if we say what is true about our sins, if we take God's side against our sins with no minimizing, with no pretending, with no faking, with no self-justification, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. But not just that, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it's precisely because David saw the worst in himself that it led him to cry not only for forgiveness, but for cleansing. Because when your sin finally becomes something that you hate, when it produces sorrow in your heart, when you are sick of it, if you want something more, you want something more than just forgiveness, you want a new heart. You want to be clean. You want to be free of every dark residue of sinful deed and desire. What David wants is not only a forgiven heart, but a clean one, a clean heart. And David shows us the path to a clean and a renewed heart that is broken over sin. We, we, we plead for the renewal of God and we testify to the goodness of God. That's the key idea for our uh, time together this evening. is that we plead for the renewal of God and we testify to the goodness of God. Let's take a look at verses 7 and 9 where we just picked up, uh, where we pick up where we, where we left off two weeks ago. It says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. And so we're going to look at renewal in three parts. Renewal is deeper than you think. Renewal is deeper than you think. Uh, you know, when Megan and I have conflict, uh, it's usually because when I wrong her, I expect that everything will go back to normal and the way things are when I say sorry and ask for her forgiveness. And, and, you know, the reason why we have conflict is because I want the forgiveness without having to change my attitude or how I respond to her at all. Now, this doesn't mean that forgiveness for us is earned, but we tend to think that forgiveness that is freely given is a forgiveness that comes with no commitments. Because asking for forgiveness is way easier than to actually change. But what we see in these three verses of David's plea is that David doesn't just want forgiveness from wrongdoing. 
What he wants is something deeper. He wants a complete transformation of the heart. Notice the verbs that he uses. He says, purge me, wash me, create in me, renew within me. You know, David isn't asking for a change of external circumstances. He isn't asking for an external transformation. He isn't asking God to get his wife off his back. He isn't asking God to get Nathan off his back. He isn't asking God to get his nagging parents to chill out. He isn't asking God to remove the responsibilities off of his plate. Rather, he is pleading for an internal transformation of the heart, irrespective of his external circumstances. David saw that the biggest problem in his life was inside of him, not the consequences that his sin had caused. Not the, big, not the problems that his sin created, nor, not the drama that his sin has exposed. You know, two weeks ago I said that a sign of maturity in the Christian life is that the sin that used to delight us is now the sin that has come to afflict us. Evil that we once loved and pursued is evil that now pursues us even when we don't want it. But here in these three verses, we see another sign of maturity. It's that when we not only want forgiveness from our sins, but freedom from our sins as well. And I think David's plea here really causes us to genuinely examine ourselves to see what we actually care about. You know, let's think about what he's actually saying to God and asking for, for God to do here. I want you guys to think about your prayer life and just think a little, a little bit second about it and the kind of things that you ask God to do in your life and in the lives of others. God, help me get an A. God, help me be nicer to my classmates. God, help me have better friends. God, help me get into this college. God, help heal my grandma's cat. Now, trust me, God is not more honored with lengthy prayers than with short ones. In fact, Jesus had more of a problem with people who honored God with their many words but, were far, but their hearts were far from him. But if God would find fault in our prayers, it isn't that we didn't pray at all, but that we didn't pray deep enough. Almost all of the things that we ask God to do in our lives is usually the changing of our external circumstances, not our internal circumstances. This is not to discourage us from, from bringing all of our needs to God, but when, when was the last time you would actually ask God to change your heart, your own heart, when it comes to loving difficult people, when it comes to the parents who badger you, when it comes to the classmates who annoy the heck out of you. We are constantly told to check our hearts, to evaluate our hearts. But the question is, do we actually do it? Do we actually do it at Lighthouse Community Church? Now, just to bring a bit more nuance to this, life is hard. I, I completely get it. People are difficult. Exacerbating parents make our lives hard. Teachers assigning a ton of projects and exams during homecoming is super annoying. The promises of success, academics, and world are alluring and tempting. But David's plea for renewal makes us evaluate whether our greatest troubles are ultimately located outside of us or inside of us. It's the reason why David in verse 6 says that God desires truth in the inner parts. There is a kind of transparency that God desires, and it's not a transparency that is easily shown on the outside but revealed on the inside of our hearts. God seeks people whose external profession of faith is completely consistent with the inner reality of their hearts. It's the reason why Jesus says that when you pray, you go into a private place like your room and pray in secret. Why? Well, it's because Jesus knows that a Christian can fake just about anything in the Christian life except for a private prayer life. But if we identify ourselves 
as the greatest problem, then we actually take the first step in experiencing renewal from God. Because if you take a look back at verse 7, David says, wipe me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And that brings us to the second aspect of renewal. Renewal is looking back. Renewal is looking back. Now, what is hyssop? David had mentioned uh, to purge him with hyssop. Hyssop is a plant that priests in the Old Testament use to cleanse the people of Israel from their sin. But it's because it draws from the first time hyssop was used in the Old Testament. Hyssop was first used at the time of the first Passover when God led his people out of Egypt. God tells his people to slaughter a lamb and pour its blood into a basin. Then they were told to take a bunch of hyssop, a plant, and dip it into the blood and paint it on the door frames of their house. And the reason why was because the people that were on the inside of the house were just as guilty and sinful as the people outside of the house. And when the angel of death saw the blood of that lamb, he passed over the house with the, with the door frames brushed, with the hyssop drenched from the blood of the lamb. Why does David recall this story? It's because for every Israelite, the Exodus was their redemption event. Every Israelite, generations and generations after the Exodus, looked back to the Exodus as a turning point of their salvation. Every Old Testament believer trusted and believed in this story as their own story, even though they weren't there to personally witness it. This was the story that David clung to as he pleaded for renewal. But what the Exodus story foreshadows and points forward to is a greater Exodus. I want you guys to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Turn to Luke chapter 9. Put your finger in Psalm 51 because we're going to turn back there. But, Psalm, uh, but Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 31. Verses 28 to 31 of Luke chapter 9. This is what John, uh, Luke records for us. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, as Jesus reveals himself to be the Messiah and the Son of God, I don't know if you guys ever noticed this before, but Luke uses a very specific word to describe his departure. If you guys notice in verse 32, uh, verse 31 rather, uh, there's a footnote that says departure. Footnote 1, and in Greek it says, it literally says Exodus. I don't know if you guys ever noticed it before. Luke says that the Exodus would be something that Jesus would accomplish at Jerusalem. It would be a greater Exodus where the blood of the Lamb in the Passover foreshadowed the blood of the Lamb of God who wipes away and cleanses the sin of the world. It would be a departure from heaven and a departure to come for you and for me. It would be a departure that would lead him on a hill called Calvary. And at Calvary, he would be hoisted upon a cross. And on the cross, his blood will be spilt to make us clean and more than that, whiter than snow. And the purpose is so that you would know without a shadow of a doubt that you can't clean yourself up. You can't clean yourself up. And we all know this, but the problem is that so many of us still try to. You know, when my youngest sister was six years old, and I think I might have shared this story with you guys before, I don't remember now, uh, she decided to cut her hair uh, one afternoon. And uh, on the afternoon that she had cut her hair, 
Uh, it was really, it was, it was eerily quiet in her house. She's usually, usually the loudest one in her house. Um, and, and usually when the house is too quiet, there is usually something that someone shouldn't have been doing. But somehow my sister was, complete, was left completely unsupervised and she had cut off all this hair from her head. And it was hilarious and cute because she had tried to make bangs, but she cut so close to her scalp that it actually looked like the top of her head was shaved. So it looked, like, it looked really bad. Um, but, but fearing what our mom would have thought, and instead of just telling our mom, which was uh, the easier option, she tried, she, what she did was she just scotch taped all the hair that was on the floor, and she tried to reattach it to her head. Now, covering up has been a go-to practice since the beginning of time. When Adam and Eve sin against God, their, their instinctive response to their sin was to cover up with fig leaves and not to confess it to God. To go to God, the one whom they had sinned against, seemed so counterintuitive that their immediate thought was to just hide from him, to fix the problem on their own, and then come back to God once their failures were covered up. And it's no surprise that we do the same. One of the startling things that I've found both as a Christian and as a pastor is that when I have a good week, I find it almost impossible not to pray to God. I can't help but tell God about my day, uh, I, I, praising him, doing all these, asking of all these things. But if I have an argument with Megan, or if I have conflict with other people, you'd be hard-pressed to find me on my knees at all. I, I know that, in theory, I know that I can come to God with all of my sin and shame when I've failed him and others, but I still look somewhere else. Where do you turn to for cleansing? And renewal. Maybe we'll do our devotions and be nice to others, but not because we want to or we need to, but because of the fear of the consequences if we don't. Maybe we're willing to endure a season of feeling bad as a form of penance, as a form of payback for what we've did this past week. Sometimes we pledge to ourselves, to, to, to others, and to God that we'll do better next time. But there is such a thing as excessive and unnecessary sorrow. Where, where, where regret and guilt can go wrong and sour. In its pristine form, guilt says, against you and you alone have I done evil in your sight. And then it turns to God for mercy and receives it. But when corrupted, guilt is linked to satanic accusations and legalism. You know, in The, in, in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Edmund, uh, the, the younger brother, the youngest brother, uh, has been forgiven by Aslan after he had betrayed him. And uh, after being accused by the witch, C.S. Lewis records in Edmund's response, a response that any guilty person can only do. C.S. Lewis writes, he says, You have a traitor there, Aslan, said the witch. Of course, everyone present knew that she meant Edmund. But Edmund had got past thinking about himself after all he'd been through and after the talk that he had had that morning. He just went on looking at Aslan. It didn't seem to matter what the witch had said. Edmund had gotten past thinking about himself, and he went on looking at Aslan. As, as Robert Murray McShane once wrote, he says, For every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. Take ten looks at Christ. If you want to be made whiter than snow, just as David looked back at the Exodus event, cast your glance back to the cross event, to the greater Exodus where Jesus hung on the cross. That is where your sins are. That is where your shame is. That is where your guilt is. It's on the cross. All of it. What can wash my sin away? What can make me whole again? What can make me white as snow? 
Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And again, this doesn't mean that sin doesn't have its consequences. If you take a look back at Psalm 58 again, Psalm 50, uh, I'm sorry, Psalm 51, verse 8, David reminds us that crushed bones may rejoice, but, but bones might never be made whole again. But this passage isn't a plea for the freedom of consequences, but a, a plea for the freedom from sin. If freedom from sin is what you want, if freedom from guilt and shame is what you want, if you want God to blot out your iniquities, then, it's, then in Jesus, it's what you can have. Jesus' last words before he died was, it is finished. But in the Greek, it's only one word, tetelestai. That is, this, this is what the, the Puritan John Flavel once wrote on this single word. It is but one word in the original But in that one word is contained the sum of all joy. The very spirit of all divine consolation. When Jesus says that it is finished, it is finished. That's that's it. It's done. The third aspect of renewal is that renewal is lifelong. Renewal is lifelong. So turn back to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Take a look at verses 10 to 11. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. What David is asking God to do on the inside of his heart is to recreate a completely brand new heart from which flows renewed desires, thoughts, and actions. But this is something that only God can do. The word that David uses for create is the Hebrew word bara. In the Jewish consciousness, Using the word bara was an echo back to the opening pages of Genesis, where in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Creation was an act that only God could do. In other words, David is pleading for nothing less than a miracle to happen in his own heart. David Pallison writes that faith is a miracle on the order of the creation of the universe. Because the same God who said, let, let light shine out of darkness, is the same God who, sh- who has shown the light of Christ into the darkness of our hearts. By using the word bara, the word create, David is asking God the only thing that only someone like God can do. If we want a new heart, God has to be the one to transform it. It's not a pastor, it's not a counselor, it's not your friends. If we want new desires, God has to effect it. Your parents can't convince you of it. You can't convince yourself of it. God has to. If you want a new desire, new devotion, God himself has to inspire it. Sermons can't do that alone. And this is what the Old Testament saints longed for. The reason why Israel ultimately failed God as a nation was because the old heart that they had would only and continually rebel against the God who made them. What Israel needed was a new heart. And this was precisely something that God promised that he would do. In Ezekiel chapter 36, God promises in the new covenant that he would give his people a new heart and he would put a new spirit within them. And through the spirit, we have what the Old Testament saints longed to have. What this means is that as Christians who have been indwelt by the Spirit and have been given a new heart, the greatest hope as the Christian is that change is possible right here and right now for you as a Christian. I, mean, I don't know if you've ever been told that change is possible. I mean, I, I, I imagine, of course, it has been at Lighthouse Community Church. 
But if you've never believed it before, believe it now. Change is possible. How freeing it is to know that for all the sin that you struggle with, for all the unwanted struggles that you face, for all the difficult circumstances that you experience, you can change in the midst of them all. As someone who has the Spirit living in you, you are no longer shackled to the old ways of living. If you have conflict with people, you can change in that. But just as miraculous and instantaneous a new, a renewed heart is, what we also need to recognize in this prayer is that renewal is lifelong. Meaning that the new way of being human takes time. In the Hebrew, the word for a right spirit is actually the word for steadfast, faithful, reliable. But if you think about it, steadfastness, reliability, and faithfulness are hardly virtues that come instantly with a quick prayer or two, but take time to cultivate. For example, when I married Megan, I had grown into, I had to grow into the role of being a better husband. Being a good husband wasn't just something that would come naturally and instantly just because my status had changed or because I had a ring on my finger. In my almost four years of marriage, being a better husband takes time and skill and a lot of growth in loving another person more than you love yourself. But this kind of speed isn't fast enough for most of us. When I, when I listen to sermons or lectures, I put the speed on two times, maybe sometimes three times the speed. We often want to warp speed our spiritual growth. We live in a super results-driven culture. And as a result, it's no surprise when we want quick solutions and quick results. But when we care about the results, we care less about the cultivation of our character or our lives before God. That's why we need this kind of speed. Because we often confuse and equate results with genuine change. God doesn't just desire right behavior, but a right heart. You know, last weekend, uh, most of your moms, and actually reason, one of the reasons why we had uh, youth group off, but most of your moms and small group leaders uh, were at the women's retreat. And I, you know, I heard great and awesome things about the entire weekend, and Megan was telling me how there was a Q&A uh, with the retreat speaker, and the retreat speaker had, had answered almost all the questions on the fly. And thankfully, um, all the questions submitted were anonymous, so I'm not embarrassing anyone. Now, just to give you some context and some info on, on who the speaker was, uh, the retreat speaker was... Um, was an unmarried lady, lady who had done a lot of missions work around the world and now works as a director for Children's Hunger Fund. And the one thing that Megan had observed about the Q&A was how much the questions revolved around how do I situations, uh, which is completely understandable given the fact that it's a Q&A. But Megan was surprised at the simplicity of the retreat speaker's answers. When, when asked how to be content as a single person, the retreat speaker, had, retreat speaker had remarked that it's the same way a married person finds contentment. It's not ultimately in their spouse. The implication of her answer is that contentment is found in a person named Jesus, not in a changed circumstance. But what surprised Megan wasn't what she said, but what she didn't say. She gave no five-step process to contentment. There was no checklist of things that you need to do to get contentment. Another question that was asked was, how do I have a heart for missions? How do I have a heart for missions? You want to guess what her answer was? Her answer was simply, that you need to love God more than anything in the world. And I know that might be unsatisfying as an answer, but I think the answer gets down to the very core of any how-to. Are you more satisfied in God than in a, in a helpful to-do list? Sometimes as Christians, we just want the right answer. 
the right steps, the right process, the right way of thinking about things. And I think that's understandable. One wrong turn, one wrong word, one wrong step, and maybe we'll just mess everything up. And these are appropriate concerns, and we should be practical to a certain degree. But I suspect that if, we, if all we want is the right answer, the right steps to take, the right process, I wonder if we'll ever need the Spirit of God at all if we have all the right solutions to our problems. You want to know how to warp speed your, your sanctification, your spiritual growth? You, you might not like the answer, because God's choices, means, and tools to accelerate your spiritual growth is actually through personal suffering through difficult relationships, through messy friendships, through slow relationships, difficult people. The point is that we can't short-circuit or cut corners on spiritual growth. In reality, God's work in us is more like planting seeds, cultivating the earth, waiting for its harvest, moving at the slow pace of, of sowing and reaping. As miraculous as faith and renewal are, spiritual growth is never measured in terms of its speed, but in its harvest and the fruit that is reaped from its sowing. God works organically in our lives, and if we walk with him, we'll find that there is a direction to our steps with God. Martin Luther once wrote this. He said, This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing not being, but becoming, not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. This is the miraculous renewal that God is doing in the lives of his spirit-filled people. It is a slow process. It's not less Miraculous, but slow. So we plead for the renewal of God. We ask God for it deeply and constantly for the entirety of our lives. Secondly, the second point is that we testify to the goodness of God. We testify to the goodness of God. Now take a look at verses 12 to 17. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And what we see in these six verses is the kinds of people God welcomes. The kind of people that God welcomes are those who are broken and come to him for renewal. He does not despise these kind of people. And what this tells us is that our lives don't have to be put together before coming to God. In fact, that is actually what God prefers and desires. The prerequisite to coming to God isn't pretension, but contrition. God welcomes those whose hearts have been crushed and broken by their sins and by their sorrows. If you observe Jesus' interactions with the people that he encountered, he was never neutral toward any of them. Jesus always had a response to, to, to them. But do you know what kinds of people Jesus was harshest with? It was the people who pretended that they were okay with God 
that, they did, that people who did their due diligence, people who gave their offerings, they gave their tithes, they read their Bibles, and yet their hearts were far from him and their sins unconfessed. But on the other hand, if you have also observed the kinds of people that Jesus responds to, the kinds, do you know what kinds of people Jesus was the most tender with? It was the people who didn't pretend at all. They had no time for pretending. People who knew that they weren't okay. People who knew their brokenness and had no, had no point to hide it at all. People who openly confessed their sins. People who wanted Jesus to do something about it. These were the kinds of people that Jesus was most tender with. A couple of years ago, I was, uh, I was, live, I was watching um, the live stream of a new conference that had just released, that had just launched called Revoice. And Revoice was a conference that, that aimed to encourage and, and provide pastoral care for Christians who struggle with homosexuality and, and same-sex attraction and desires. And, and the, the live stream had recorded um, uh, the musical worship. And, you know, as I was watching at first, I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. You know, like I'm just watching some, some people, you know, sing. But the hymn that they were singing was, It Is Well With My Soul. And, you know, if we had sung it at church this Sunday, we would hardly think twice about this song. But in the context of the conference, the words of the hymn seem to jump off the screen. My, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. At the words, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more, the entire sanctuary erupted in spontaneous praise and worship and applause. By that point, it was as if I was actually in the room with them. But in this spontaneous eruption of praise was this unburdening of their guilt this, this, and their shame and the unfettered joy that they had experienced in receiving God's salvation in Jesus as they rehearsed and sung the gospel together. But what I often find ironic for most Bible preaching and Bible teaching churches is this disconnect. Somehow, the more theology that people know, the more, the more knowledge that people possess, the less it seems to result in thankfulness. The less it seems to erupt in praise, the less it seems to work at itself out in joy. The more theology they know, the more stoic they become. The more knowledge they have, the more rigid they become. The more Bible teaching they get, the more joyless they become. It makes me wonder if they were even saved at all. Do they even have the good news of Jesus? Because what David is saying here is that the way you know an internal renewal has occurred in your heart is when you can't help but praise and when you can't help but tell other sinners what God has done for this sinner. Take a look at verse 13 again. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Out of all people, forgiven sinners who know the complete and total depravity of man should be the happiest of sinners because they have the completed and total work of Jesus on the cross for them. But maybe some of us have no joy to share, no news to share, no story to share, no grace to share, no forgiveness to share because we have not experienced joy ourselves we have not experienced the good news of Jesus ourselves. We have not been grafted into God's story. We have not experienced the grace of God. We have not been forgiven by God. Maybe that's why we don't tell people of the forgiveness of God. Why we don't tell the grace of God to other people. Because we have just not experienced it ourselves. 
at the very heart of missions and evangelism to your friends, to your classmates, to your neighbors, your unbelieving family members, isn't a five-step process on being more mission-minded or spending an entire month focusing on evangelism. Those things are important, but that's not at the heart of effective evangelism and missions. Because at the very heart of missions and evangelism is a deep and intimate experience of your own salvation and forgiveness in Jesus the Messiah. In Mark chapter 5, there's a story of Jesus healing a man with thousands of demons in him. It was a pretty bleak situation for this guy. And Jesus rescues him. By his grace, Jesus sees his need and he just rescues him. And as much as this man wanted to follow Jesus, Jesus gives him a different task. He tells him to go home to his friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for him and how he has had mercy on him. And the man went away in obedience and began to proclaim in his hometown how much Jesus had done for him. The demon-possessed man became a man on a mission possessed with what Jesus had done for him. It was something that this man never got over. What has Jesus done for you, Christian? What has Jesus done for you? How has Jesus changed your story? What is your story? And when we have seen what Jesus has done for us, how God has been patient, merciful, persistent with our failings, then we can be patient and persistent with the failings of others. Notice that the latter half of this passage moves from our relationship with God to our relationship with God's people. Our relationship with others is linked with our relationship with God. It is impossible to look at our relationships with others the same way when we have been gripped by the grace of God. Corey Ten Boom was a Christian who lived in Amsterdam during World War II, and she and her family had helped a ton of Jews from Nazis Uh, by hiding them in their home. Uh, Her entire family was eventually caught and imprisoned in a concentration concentration camp. Several several family members uh, members, uh, died during the imprisonment. Corey was eventually released because of an administrative error, but the rest of the girls in her age group weren't so fortunate as they were sent to the gas chambers. Years after her release at a church service in Munich, Corey saw a former Nazi guard who patrolled the the, the same shower room that Corey showered in. And a flood of memories enter Corey's mind. Let me just tell you her story in her own words. Suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, my sister's pain-blanched face. This man, he came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, he said. To think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people in Blomendal, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand, but I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I prayed, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. 
while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command, the love itself. What does God do when we fail? God goes on loving. What do God's people do when others fail? God's people go on loving. The love of God is overwhelmingly more powerful than all the brokenness of our sinful humanity and the sinful humanity of others. We love because he first loved us. We forgive one another only because God has first forgiven us. And when he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command, the love itself. So many of us think about the command to forgive, but many of us forget the love behind the command that God gives us. Take a look finally at verses 18 and 19. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Many scholars believe that verses 18 and 19 were original to David. In other words, verses 18 and 19 were written centuries after David had written Psalm 51. Why would editors, centuries after David, include this as a part of Psalm 51? It's because, David, because, it's because after David, every king following David would fail God in the kingdom. Eventually, the temple walls of Jerusalem would be destroyed for their unbelief and their hypocrisy. The broken temple meant the nation judged. The last two verses are here, I think, because it is an anticipation of a Davidic king who would rule as God intended. The end of Psalm 51 makes us lift our eyes to the messianic king who would make all things right in all things new. It points to a greater David who truly ran after God's own heart, a greater David who would raise the temple of his body in three days, a greater David who would go to the altar and, be, and, his, and spill his blood for his enemies, a, a greater David who would be pierced for our transgressions, a greater David who would be crushed for our iniquities, a greater David who takes away the sin of the world, the only man whose blood can make us whiter than snow. This is what the end of Psalm 51 anticipates. It's the story of redemption, the story of the cross, the story of Jesus the Messiah. You know, there's an old, there's an old hymn that I used to sing in my church that was called, I Love to Tell the Story. And it's unfortunate that most of you probably have never heard of it. How many of you guys have heard of, ever heard of it before? I Love to Tell the Story. Some of you guys, okay, the old people, kind of. I'm not going to recite the entire song because it'll take forever, but I, I, I'm going to read the refrain of the hymn. It says, I love to tell the story. T'will be my theme in glory. To tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Do you know the story? Do you know the story? Do you know his story? May we love to tell the story. The old, old story of Jesus and his love for us. Let's pray. God, we need your help. We need new hearts. We don't just need new behavior. We need a new affection, a new desire, a new desire to want you more than anything else. Because God, our, our hearts are prone to wander. We want other stuff, good stuff, but stuff more than Jesus. And so God, we do pray that you would 
that you would do in our hearts something that only you can do. And God, I pray that as I pray this prayer, that you would answer our prayer, God. That you create new hearts for those that have not been, whose hearts have not been recreated. I pray that you would do it now. I pray that for some of our kids here, maybe they have never realized that they were never Christians in the first place. That they don't actually have a new heart. And I pray that maybe in, in the quietness of their own hearts, that, that as they reach out to you, that you would answer their prayers, that you would regenerate their hearts, recreate a new heart in them, put a, a new spirit, a new affection, a new heart in them. And that from there flow rivers of living water, rivers that flow, that, that our kids, as a result of a renewed heart, would be people of consequence, that people who have a story to share, people whose lives have been changed by the Messiah and have no, have no choice but to share what Jesus and his love has done for us. So God, we thank you. We love you guys all in Jesus' name. Amen.